he's alive. I had two sermons I was toying with, and Brendan pretty much confirmed which one it's going to be. The first one was going to be, I was thinking about preaching about the kingdom, um, because I think that we, we only have a very small understanding of what that is, but there's two major dynamics to the kingdom. Do you want to know what those are? I'll tell you when I preach on it. And, and besides, I don't think 30 to 45 minutes is enough. I would need to, to do it in two, in two, uh, two sermons. Um, the other one is from chapter, John chapter 4, if you want to go there. Where's Brendan? So Brendan didn't have a clue what I was wanting to talk about today, and I've been wanting to speak about this for quite some time now. Um, and then he decided to talk about it during worship. That's very interesting. Um, I've said it before. When, you, when you're in a prophetic house, then God is constantly speaking. Well, let me put it more sound. When you're in a prophetic house, you're constantly hearing God speak. Because God is always speaking. We just don't listen. So let's pick it up from chapter 4 um, of John. We'll go through, I'll, just, I'll read pretty much the whole portion of Scripture and we'll just break it up as we go. Okay. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. I like that portion because the one time I remember going down, we had some people that had come from a more traditional style of church. We went down to go and baptize someone. Um, who had come into the, into crossing point and wanted to be baptized, and I didn't baptize. And some of these people had an issue with that because I let other members of the church do it rather than me. But they felt it wouldn't be right because the the leader, this, the pastor, the priest, the minister, whatever you want to call him, he's the one that's meant to baptize them. I find it very interesting here that Jesus, the great pastor, the great shepherd, the great leader, didn't baptize. He let his disciples do it. So that just negates all of those religious traditions. Anyone can baptize, any born-again Christian can baptize anyone who's just been born again. That's it, settled in that scripture. No more arguments, right? I love the fact that we can argue with people, but we cannot argue with scripture. As much as you want to, your argument is with, is with the truth itself. So he wasn't baptizing them, his disciples were. He left Judea and he departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour of the day. Now, there's an interesting thing here, because Jesus, being a Jew, decided to cross a border into a, town called, into a, a region called Samaria. This is what we would class as cross-cultural missions. And we're a church that want to be missional, right? And so in order to be truly missional, we need to learn to cross cultures within our own city as Jesus brings nations to us and also when we leave the borders of our own nation. Cross-cultural mission is, is huge on the heart of God. I mean, I know of a church in this town where that comes from my home, South African church, right? They they preach in the Afrikaans language to reach, and you're living in an, in an, in an English-speaking nation. 
And I'll tell you now, every South African that I've known, and I was born and raised there, can speak English. But when you preach on a Sunday in a, in a language, when you are capable of speaking English in an English-speaking nation, and you are proclaiming and preaching in your home tongue, you are, you are blocking off unsaved people who don't know your language from coming in and being born again, from hearing the gospel. I, I just think that that's not the heart of God. I'm not saying they're not, I just, I'm just saying we need to change the way we do things. Right? I like to challenge the status quo a little bit because I think that by the status quo we limit God in expressing himself through us. It may be offensive to some. I'm sorry. A woman from Samaria. So, so he comes and he sits here. Now I want to speak to you because this interesting part is, is and okay, let me, let me carry on and then I'll draw, I'll draw the conclusion. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This is very interesting. They were hungry, and so they left Jesus to go somewhere else to buy food. Oftentimes, we leave the place where God wants us to be in order to go and get natural provision. Now, they would have been satisfied with a spiritual food, and I believe that they would still have been satisfied with a natural food had they remained at the well. That's my take on it. But as I was preparing this sermon, I really felt this. And it's a I've got a testimony in my own life that sort of confirms what I was feeling at the time. Is When I first moved to, from England back to South Africa, um, I've always worked in construction, but at that time, there wasn't any work happening in my city, and I'd just been saved into the church that I was attending, and um, I got offered opportunities to go to other African nations, Tanzania, to Malawi, to Angola, as a civil engineer, to go and build roads and dams, and put in water pipes, and paying you, you know, in those days, five, six thousand US dollars for a South African when your currency was ten to one, that's huge. You've got a wife who's pregnant, going to have a daughter, and you've got no job and no money, and you're getting these offers where you can fly out for a month, we'll fly you back for, for two weeks, you go out for a month, you come back for two weeks, and we'll give you five, six thousand dollars. We would, we would have been living more wealthier than most people I know in South Africa. But I never took those opportunities. I just kept feeling that God wanted me to stay where I was. And then God gave me a job. It was painting my friend's parents' house for $5 a day. That's the job I got. That's the first job I took. Because I needed money. $5 is, is not going to buy, it's going to buy you a loaf of bread and a, and, a, and a liter of milk. That's what you're going to get for $5 in South Africa. The equivalent, 50 rand. But I did it. I painted their living room and they said, well, you can paint the dining room. I painted the dining room and I ended up doing about a month's worth of work just painting their whole internal house, the external of the house, and they had like a granny flat painting that, and still the offers came because people need, in Africa they need people, they need people to go and build, people that are educated and understand how, the, they give you local labor but you manage teams of people. For some reason I felt no peace about taking those jobs, and then I remember getting a call one day where I got offered a job as a site engineer on the third largest um, aquarium in the world being built in Durban, in our city, and from there I just never had an issue with work again. 
But I tell you what, it was very stressful for that month. And there was moments where the temptation to leave where God wanted me to be and go and work in a place where I would have been financially taken care of, but spiritually I definitely would not have. I felt while preparing that, that would be for someone here today or a couple people here today, that you are in that position. You, you financially need something and you are looking to possibly move, but there's no peace in that because you, deep down inside your heart, you know that God wants you to be here. If that's you, why don't you be bold enough just to raise your hand now because I want to pray for you. You might not be. Maybe it's someone that was here two weeks, three weeks ago. One. Don't be afraid. I mean, I've just told my testimony. Two, three, four, five, six. There we go. So why don't you just why don't you just raise your hand if that's you? Just hold it up. Someone next to you, put put your hand on them. Just lay your hand on their shoulder, their arm, their leg. If it's not your wife, don't put your hand on their leg. Shoulder's good enough. Father, I just thank you that what you what you do for one, you shall do for another. And I've just shared a testimony of you breaking through into my life. It was so long ago. It was 2002. But you are outside of our time and space. I pray right now for each and every one of these people. In their hearts, they know where they're meant to be. But their minds are drawing them to another place because there's earthly possessions there. There's earthly um, supply. I pray that there would be a supernatural supply right now. Release to them in Jesus' name. I also pray, this is, this is, this is something you need to receive because it's, tomorrow it might not happen for you. But I pray, Father, that you give them the strength and the grace to endure if they know that they're meant to be here, that even if it's a six month endurance, that you would help them to endure until the breakthrough comes. Amen. Okay, thank you. So now he's sitting at this well. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask me? So he asked for a drink of water from me, a woman of Samaria, because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. The well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? This is the second time we've now heard Jacob's name in this. He gave us the well and he drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, then you must give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor will I have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Stop there for a second. This is very interesting. Jesus points out his sin. Is a text that I've heard preached so many times, and it's absolutely wrong. Jesus was not calling this woman sin out. 
we, we get that because of our evangelical, reformed understanding of the gospel. And I've said it time and time again, for us the gospel starts at the fall of man. That's where the, that's where the story starts. The big story of life starts with the fall of man. But in actual fact, it does not. It starts with, in the beginning, God created. And so when our gospel, when our message, sorry, when our story starts with the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, our gospel is centered around showing people that they're sinners so that you can then show them there's a savior. But when you look at the apostles, Predominantly preaching, it was there is a king. That's it. There is a king. You are you are lost to that family that you were originally given access to. You were lost to that, but this king has given you a way to come in. Then we speak about the cross. There's nowhere in the text where any of the disciples or the apostles use the law when speaking to Gentiles to point out the sin of the Gentile. Because Gentiles had no understanding of the law. The law was given to Jews. So Jesus is not speaking to a Jew. He's speaking to a woman who is not in, of the Jewish faith, but had a similar belief system. And Jesus does not engage her based on her sin, using the law. Jesus embraces her in her brokenness. This woman, if you understand, and you, it's good to go and study the history of these things, is this woman, number one, let's, let's, let's break it down. Number one, the writer, John, starts off by speaking about Jesus going and sitting at a well that belonged to Jacob, that was actually dug by Jacob. What he's doing, if you understand the, the rabbinical way of teaching, is that he is tying an understanding of Jacob's life to what's about to take place. Jacob's life was marked with suffering. He had to run away. He found his uncle. His uncle treated him badly. He worked for seven years to get a woman as his wife that was not the woman he was in love with. He then worked another seven years to get the wife that he was in love with. He then had to then end up fleeing the country and running away from, from his uncle with his two wives. His son is um, apparently dead for years and he loses out that life, Joseph, with his son until years later when he's an old man about to die, there's a reconciliation. He is tying in the suffering of Jacob with what is about to take place, which is the suffering of this woman. In understanding this, this woman, a number of things either happened. Women could not divorce men, men could divorce women. You could divorce a woman if she didn't cook you, if she didn't cook well, if she was bad in bed, if she didn't look after children well. For any reason that you felt as a man, you had the right to divorce a woman, which means she was put out of your home and had to go somewhere else. That's number one. Or, number two, if you, if you were married to a man as a woman and your husband died, you would then go to his, the next oldest brother. When he died, you would go to the next oldest brother. And when you ran out of brothers that you could then be married to, those brothers were called kins, kinsmen redeemers. That's what they were. You go to the next kinsman, kinsman redeemer, the next kinsman redeemer. 
When you ran out of husbands to get married to, out of that family line, you were on the streets by yourself. And like Ruth, her uh, mother-in-law encouraged her to go and sleep at the feet of a man named Boaz in the hope that Boaz would take her in and provide for her. Otherwise, she was going to live as a hobo, a homeless person. So one of these things happened. Either this woman lost her first husband, lost a second husband, had no more kinsmen or redeemers left, or she had been divorced, not by her own choice, but rejection was in her life. Her sorrow was in her life. Jacob, after he ran away, after his suffering, dug a well that provided life for his family. Jesus is about to show this woman that after her suffering, he's going to bring life. Not only that, but it was a prophetic picture of the fact that Jesus himself would go through suffering in order to bring true love. But because of our wrong thinking, our stinking thinking, we have used this story as a means where Jesus is the pointer of sin, pointer outer of sin. The woman was amazed at what Jesus said to her. She was not condemned. She was not convicted. She was blown away by the tenderness and by the truth at which this man was speaking. We need to learn as the church to embrace the brokenness of a world, not the sin of the world. Let me tell you something. I know we, we always say that, you know, um, I, I like what Sean said. He knows our deepest secrets, but he also knows our greatest joys. I want to add that he knows our, our deepest secrets. He knows our greatest pains. And he knows our excessive joys. I've heard preachers say, you know, Jesus sees you in your sin, but he doesn't remember. In actual fact, it says in the Bible, I will remember your sin no more. How do we reconcile that now with our gospel? Our gospel to the church, not our gospel to the unsaved, but our gospel even to the church of stop your, stop your behavior. Let's, let's, the gospel, I call it the, I call it the gospel of behavior modification. Let's preach a sermon week in and week out that'll cause Christians to behave in the way that we want them to because we are afraid when people behave outside of our paradigm, what we believe to be correct. We're afraid of it. And so we preach to bring people in line with what is comfortable for me. And that stops us from embracing them in brokenness. If you're a born-again Christian, you're no longer a sinner. Let's just clarify that right now. Your sin was removed by Jesus when you were placed on the cross with him, taken into the grave. And when he came back to life, you were raised with him. Did Jesus, who took on, not only took on your sin, but who became your sin. Let's just say that again because it's a powerful word. Jesus did not take on your sin. Jesus became your sin. And when he died, was he raised back to life in sin? Were you raised with him, according to Romans? Absolutely. Therefore, when you are raised with him, you are a new creation. The old, what, what was old? The nature of sin was removed. And the new, what, the new has come. What is the new? The nature of Christ. Do you still operate in the flesh? Yes. Why? 
Because sometimes your flesh overrules your spirit. And your spirit is connected to the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we make fleshy decisions because we're silly, we're stupid, we're foolish, we're human beings. We're finding our way through this new life that we have, still being pulled by the old ways of the world around us. And we've got to learn to then make those adjustments and go, I'm not listening, as we heard Rio say, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm going to listen to you. So let's read this text, please, and read all texts through an understanding of the redemption of Jesus Amen? Okay. I also find it interesting that the living water sits on the rim of the natural water, which for them was life. But true life comes. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me... uh, We've gone through this already. So um, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. Again, I've heard that she's trying to deflect from Jesus' pointing out her sin. You know, our fathers trying to become more, more religious. She's really just asking a question. She's making a statement. Look, I, I can see you're a prophet, but you know, our father said we should worship on this mountain, but you say in Jer- that we must worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will they worship the Father. You will worship what you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he is right, because he was a Jew. And he was standing right there with her. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people. That doesn't mean that we're just going to sing in tongues. Worshipping in spirit and in truth is coming from the internal, the heart, up towards God. It's not, that's why we, that's why I, I like to look around. I love looking around when the words don't work. Cause, cause you, you, you look and you see just how Reliant we've become on the natural way of worship. Rather than worshiping from here. See, the, the worship team, when they're up here, their role is really to facilitate for just a moment an opportunity for us to step out of the natural realm and into worshiping God ourselves individually, which then becomes our collective worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I want to say, uh, what do I want to say? I want to, but I'm not going to. It's just, uh, I don't feel right. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. I love that word, they marveled. It didn't say they saw. You need to understand, when, when this is written, this is, the, the language that is used was used by the Holy Spirit. He, 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 this is not a, firstly, let me just say, this is not a story. This is an actual real historical account that took place just over 2,000 years ago. It's real. We often read the Bible as a story. Let's read the story about where Jesus, it's not. This is, this is a biography of a man called Jesus, of the, of the God who became man and walked with us. And so when we read it, we need to understand it from that. When, when the, this is not an author trying to sell a book using good English language. They marveled. They were, they were, they were beyond themselves. They were, they were amazed to see 
that Jesus had crossed over a cultural barrier and was now talking to someone who was to them was classed as a dog. The Samaritans were dogs to the Jews. And a woman. And not only a woman, but an unmarried woman who had been cast aside. I mean, the name of the town, Sikar itself, is drunkard, intoxicated, liar. There's nothing good about the name of the town. It's an insignificant town. But there was nothing good about that town. And so this woman comes out of this insignificant town. I'm telling you, Jesus is meeting people that are from the most insignificant places. And watch what he does through her. So Jesus said to her, they marveled while he's talking to this woman. But no one said to him, why do you, what do you seek? No one said to the woman, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? She's already drawing conclusions. They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat some food. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, I like this because I like the disciples being so stupid because that's us. You know, we're trying to work out this God. They Often, these disciples were so confused. They were actually, I'd say 80% of the time, they were afraid and confused. There's no doubt about it. But there's one thing where Peter says, he says, whenever we're with you, you have words of love. So we're not going to go anywhere. That for me, I like Peter. I'm, I'm like Peter. One moment, I'm an absolute revelatory genius with God. You're the king, the Messiah. Thank you, God. And the next minute, I'm, I'm an absolute wally. A wally. A wally. A turkey. A fool. Peter, just read. His name was Reed. He flip-flops. That's me. I flip one moment, he's the, the king of glory. The next minute, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. Then I'm, then I'm all for him and I want to do his will and then I'm this rebellious son. That's, that's me. That's Peter. I love Peter. Because Peter is the epitome of, of the human disciple, the non-religious disciple. The person is not trying to play up to be who they think Jesus wants him to be. He's just who he is. I'll follow you to death. You'll deny me. No, I won't. I don't know who you're talking about. That's not me. <laughs> this is him. The same night. This, this wasn't like, you know, five months later. That evening, he's, he's saying, I'll die with you. The same evening, he's actually going, I don't know who that guy is. You know, there's no problem. That's me. That's us. I don't know about you. You may be, you may be someone else, but I'm Peter. <laughs> So anyway, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus fasted every single day of his life. He was part of feasts. He loved to eat. Part of their culture was eating. But what he's saying is there's a satisfaction that's beyond what that money can buy you. It's beyond what those clothes can make you feel like. It's beyond what uh, house you live in, what job you have that, that will satisfy your spirit, not your flesh. Then he says, do not say, there are yet four months, then the harvest will come. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving 
wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I like that. I like that because you know sowers, so there's no glory in sowing. You know, I had a prophetic word of my life years ago, and it's just been the same word that rings over and over again. You'll be a pioneer. You'll be a pioneer. Now, some people get excited about that. Yes, we'll be pioneers. Pioneers is not a glorious job, man. You fight battles. You bleed your hands while you're ripping rocks out of the ground. The reapers are the ones that after everything's been established and everything's grown, they're just like, this is beautiful. Look how we filled our, harvest, our, our, our um, sheds with all our fruit and vegetables. If you want to be a pioneer, come talk to me. I'll, 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 I'll talk you out of it. But if you are called to be a pioneer, I will never be able to talk you out of it. Who feels called to plant a church? Have you ever felt on your heart to plant a church? Come and talk to me. And then afterwards, if you feel like you want to, I'll tell you now you're called to be a pioneer. And we will help you. Of course we will help. Why? Because it's Jesus' pattern. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. That's, that's, I like that. For there, for, sorry, for here the saying holds true. The one sows and other reaps. He said, I sent you to reap that for which you did not sow, which did not labor. Others have labored and have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. I like that. The woman does, let me tell you something, there's nothing wrong when someone shares their testimony. The sharing of a testimony is, the, in actual fact, the whole Bible, from, from, from Genesis to Revelation, is people, people's testimonies who encountered God. That's really what it is. Every one of these people encountered God in some way or the other, and they wrote it down. And, and we now have it called the Bible. A testimony is a powerful tool if it's not about you, but it's about the king. So they came and they said from the town, uh, so many came and they believed in the woman because of the woman's testimony. So, so, um, so he, the, her testimony is that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans, that just helps me, that makes me think that maybe more of the conversation went down. Remember this. None of the disciples were there when Jesus spoke to the woman. Jesus has, has, record, has given this to, to John. John wrote the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, after he wrote Revelations, which means it was after he had been taken up into heavenly places in the Spirit. He then wrote Revelations, and then he comes and decides to write actual account of this person, Jesus. So Jesus probably told him this while he was with him, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's pretty wild. That just twists around your mind for a little while. So there may have been other conversations. Regardless, this, this woman went into the town and, and got everyone to come out. Um, so when, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I love that. It, the Jews rejected Jesus. He crosses over a cultural barrier to the dogs of the Jews, and they believe in him in two days. Also in this, it's not enough for you to sit here and listen to us preach sermons and believe based on what we're telling you. You truly believe when you hear 
the voice of Jesus for yourself and it becomes revelation to you. I always have always told people, if you, if I read a scripture to you, right, and you don't have your Bible with you, write it down, the back of your hand, piece of paper, on your shoe, wherever you want to write it, on your phone, put it down there, and it is up to you to go and read that and search out to see if I'm telling the truth or not. I don't have a certificate, and even if I did have a certificate that said, he has gone to seminary for seven years, if so be. It is not for you to believe what I'm telling you. This is where it all went downhill, back in the days of, you know, um, Constantine. And it's been that way ever since. People sit in church every fourth Sunday, and because he's the pastor who went to that college, whatever he says is true, but it's absolutely not at times. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Some pastors, preachers, teachers, ministers are going to tell you things that are not true. Shock and horror. Oh. But because, we, and I've said it to you before, it's because we preach from a Western understanding of what we believe the gospel is and our story has started at the fall of man. But there is a reformation taking place. Not like the reformation with Martin Luther. Because Martin Luther brought some revelation. But within that, we actually have the reformed theology of you still a sinner. You're a sinner covered by the blood. You're not a saint who's been washed clean completely. And I go hard after these things sometimes. You know why? Because religion stinks. And it doesn't bring people into relationship with God. It actually keeps them apart. While, and, and in those wrong teachings, while we seek to bring people towards God, we in actual fact keep them away from God. The exact same thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You were put in place after the Maccabees had liberated Jerusalem from the rule of foreigners and had wiped out the word of God, the Torah, um, from, from, our, from our language, from our lifestyle. And then the Maccabees go and they start a revolution and they gain back Jerusalem and they put the Pharisees in place to read the word of God once again back into the nation. And man stuck his stinky fingers in and before you know it, the Ten Commandments became over 600 rules and regulations made by man and it kept people out of the presence of God instead of bringing them in. We do the same thing. Martin Luther started a reformation to change that and man said, we'll make a religion around this. We'll make a denomination around this. And we'll produce a gospel around this. And this is what we live in to this day. So another reformation is starting. I'm nearly finished.